You are listening to Revival Talk. I'm Pastor Terry Bailey, and I want to thank you for joining me today on the podcast. In today's message, we will be talking about the wonder of the cross. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Isaac Watts is considered to be the father of English hymnody. One source I read said that there are 600 hymns attributed to him. He wrote songs that we still sing today. Joy to the world, a Christmas song. Oh God, our help in ages past, we're marching to Zion. He wrote the words, alas and did my Savior bleed. We know it as at the cross. Ralph Hudson added the chorus and the tune that we use now later in later years because it was lost to us. Perhaps one of the best hymns and the most well-known hymns that he wrote is one that's titled, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Listen to the lyrics. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I counted but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrificed them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flowed mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. Now he was a very controversial figure in his day. Because up until this time, they only sang certain psalms and certain scriptures in worship services. And he believed that you could take and you could make worship more. And you could make hymns more and, and sing more about the things of God. So he fought a tremendous battle. And we're still fighting those battles over style and substance of music. But the 600 hymns he wrote, the one that is most, probably most recognized and most well-known, is the one that talks about the wonder of the cross. The wonder of the cross. And that's what I want to speak to you about this morning, is the wonder of the cross. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Andrew Murray says salvation comes through a cross and a crucified Christ. We're in awe of the cross today because to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And I believe that we must recover our wonder and our awe of God. The word wonder there is defined as a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. Another word for wonder would be awe. We're in awe because of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. E. Stanley James is quoted, he said, At the cross God wrapped his heart in flesh and blood and let it be nailed to the cross for our redemption. The cross is not a religious emblem, but it is a living testimony of God's love. The cross is not just a decoration that we put on our steeples or we hang on the front of our churches or we wear as a decoration around our neck. But it is a living testimony 
of God's unfailing, unconditional love for sinful humanity. When I look at the cross, I'm in awe. When I look at the cross, I'm in, I have such an amazement in my heart that God would love such a rebellious, such a sinful, such a wicked person such as I was. And yet he would find me and redeem me and make me his own. So the cross today stands as a testimony. When God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, he first sent ten plagues or ten wonders on the Egyptians. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the heavy burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. In Deuteronomy 26, 8, So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. The cross stands today as a sign and a wonder. It is a testimony of God's unconditional love. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5 verse 8 says, but God demonstrates. Think about that. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He don't just say, I love you. He doesn't just preach, I love you. He doesn't just say in this book, I love you. But God demonstrates his love to us. How does he do that? I believe it begins at the cross. The cross is a demonstration. It is a sign. It is a wonder. And we're in awe today of the cross because it was on the cross that our redemption was paid for. So this morning, let me share three things with you about the wondrous cross of Calvary. Number one, let's talk about the warfare of the cross. As I was preparing this message this week and struggling over how to put it together and how to find the flow of it, you have to find a flow. A message has to kind of find a flow. And so sometimes you just have to pray and say, Lord, how do I put this together? And, and as I was thinking on this term, the thought came to me, the warfare of the cross. And I don't know that we think about the cross in terms of warfare. We don't think about the warfare, the spiritual warfare that Christ endured just to go to the cross. There was spiritual warfare that surrounded the cross. As we examine the events of the cross, we see the cruelty and the treachery of men. A corrupt king, a Roman leader, Pilate, Herod, and a religious system worked to preserve their power and their political influence. And if it meant destroying this man, if it meant killing this man, if it meant crucifying this man, we'll do anything in our power to keep our political power and our influence. Boy, it sounds like today, don't it? When we study the events of Passion Week, and today's the beginning of Passion Week, Holy Week, it's the holiest time on the Christian calendar. We see the spiritual battle that was taking place. And Matthew 21 begins what we know today as Palm Sunday. Let's pick it up, the story in chapter 21, verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before them and those who followed crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I want you to know that that was a wonderful day of worship. Jesus comes into a city. 
And the crowd spread the way. They take palm branches and lay it in the way. They lay their clothes out. And they receive him as if he's a conquering king. But I want you to note, he didn't come that day riding a stallion or a steed. He didn't come with a, with a company of soldiers. But he came on a lowly donkey. He came as a servant. He came as the lamb. John identified He said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He came to, to die. He came to go to the cross. He came to take my place and your place he came to die our death he came to die for our sins he came to shed his blood that where the blood dropped onto the planet and because this altar became an all this earth became an altar of the universe he came to die so you and I could be restored to the father he came so we could have access he came so that we could be called the children of God so he came that day to great praise and great worship and listen to what it says and when he come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? I want you to note those words. All the city was moved. Who is this? In verse 11, they said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, anytime a city is moved, and by the way, when Jesus comes into the city, the city's going to be moved. Or we experience a powerful visitation from the Lord. You better know that we're going to experience spiritual opposition. Now, Jesus doesn't stop for a press conference. He doesn't call up CNN. He wouldn't. He doesn't call up MSNBC or Newsmax or whoever. He doesn't stop for a press conference. You know where he goes first? He goes right to the temple. He goes right to the house of God. If you read the New Testament, you find out that judgment begins at the house of God. Whatever God's going to do in America, he's going to do it first in the church. If it's judgment, if it's revival, if it's visitation, outpouring, and awakening, he's going to begin it in the church. He's not going to start it in the Congress. He's not going to start it at the State House. He's not going to start it up here at the Greenwood County Courthouse. But he's going to start with his people. And the first place that Jesus goes is he goes into the temple. And I want you to notice what he does. He goes into the temple, and it's not a sweet, kind visit. He doesn't have a reception in the seats of power, but he goes first to the temple. And in verse 11 of Matthew 21, Jesus went into the temple and he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. Now, wait a minute. I thought we were supposed to be getting folks in the house. And Jesus is driving them out of the house. And then notice what he does. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. I'm talking about spiritual warfare. I'm talking about the warfare surrounding the cross. The first place Jesus goes to when he comes into the city is he goes to his house. And what does he do? He drove out those who were playing games. He drove out the hypocrites. He drove out those who were, who were making money and who were cheating the people of God. You see, when they would come in, they would have to exchange their money for a temple currency. And many times the money changers were making money. They were jacking up the prices. They were doing things that were unscrupulous. That's why when Jesus went in there, he turned over their tables. And he drove them out of the temple. And here's what he said. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you've made it a den of thieves. You've used it to profit off of. You've used it to make money off of. I never meant for my house to be a place of business. I never meant for my house to be a civic organization. But I mean for my house to be a place where people can touch God and God can touch them. Where they can be changed and renewed and revived by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And you've made it a den of thieves. Think about that. And then verse 14 says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. And then notice what happened. When the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. How dare him allow them blind people in here? And then what did Jesus say? Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. And then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. And in Matthew 23, he weeps over the city. Look at verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stoned those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we go through this week and we find him at Gethsemane. He's in the garden. One of the most beautiful places you can visit in Israel is the garden of Gethsemane. There are beautiful olive trees that are there to this day. And those trees have grown from the roots of the trees and what was there when Jesus was there. As a matter of fact, they have great love and great respect for those trees. And oftentimes they will do whatever they need to do to save those trees. They even transplant them if they have to, to keep those trees in Israel. And I went there. I went to that place. And next to the garden is a church that's been built. It's called the, the Church of All Nations. And it's a gorgeous, beautiful place where you go and you pray for the nations. But Jesus is praying in the prayer so intense, the Bible said, that his sweat become as great drops of blood. He's bleeding in the garden. This is before his trial. This is before his arrest. This is before his time before Herod and his time before Pilate. And his disciples are asleep. When he prayed, his sweat became as great drops of blood. You see, the cross was violent. Crucifixion was started by the Persians, picked up by the Carthaginians, and then by the Romans. And the Romans were masters at crucifixion. They perfected it to get every ounce of suffering before death out of it. It was a cruel and inhumane form of punishment. And our Savior, he suffered in our place. The suffering was unimaginable. I don't have words to describe the cruelty and the violence of that day. Luke describes his condition as he prayed in the garden. In Luke 22, verse 44, he says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I want you to think about this. The holy, harmless, sinless Son of God was arrested and led away as a criminal. He was beaten, rejected by his own and falsely accused. He endured six different trials by the Jewish authorities and the Romans, all illegal. In Luke 22, 63 through 64, He was brutally beaten with a Roman whip. Dr. Frank Tunstall writes, Roman flogging was one of the cruelest punishments of the ancient world. The sentence was tantamount to being beaten to death, minus a blow or two. Most people would pay any price to avoid it, and Jesus knew he would not escape that as well. We learn in Isaiah 50, verse 6, his beard would be plucked out. 
He was stripped of his clothes. He carried the cross in the place, to the place of execution. He was crucified outside the city gates. He was nailed to a tree. From nine in the morning to three in the afternoon, he suffered at the hands of his own creation. Listen to the taunts and the mockings from the bystanders as recorded in Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 through 43. And those who passed by blaspheming, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others himself, he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. I'm talking about the warfare surrounding the cross. In Psalms 22, we get a prophetic picture of the cross. Listen to the words of Christ describing his suffering as written prophetically by David. In verses 14 and 15, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. In Hebrews chapter 4, listen to what it says, verse 1 and 2. I just want to read them together, but verse 2 is where I'm going. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He wasn't magically exempted from the pain of the cross. He wasn't magically exempted from the suffering of the cross. He endured the cross. Listen to what it says. Despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want you to think about the warfare of the cross because it was at the cross that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was warfare surrounding the cross. But then I want you to notice, secondly, the worth. The worth of the cross. I should preach a whole message right here on this one point. I was shouting. As I was studying and preparing this. There's no way to measure the worth of the cross. When we sell a house or property, you hire an appraiser. You call your realtor and you say, can you pull the, comparative, you know, the, the comps and compare the prices? And they'll say, well, your house is worth $175,000 or $180,000 based on the comps. But then once you sell it and you agree on a price, you hire an appraiser. And, and the appraiser comes in and he studies all the houses in that community in that area and he comes up with an appraisal. And that's the amount of the money that the bank will loan on that house. Now, if you happen to have bought that house less than the appraisal, you automatically have that much equity in the house going into it. If you have a piece of jewelry or a piece of art or something that's of value, you take it to an appraiser and they research it and they're experts on how to measure the cost and the value and they'll put a value on that. So if something happens to it, somebody comes and steals it and you turn it into the insurance, the insurance company will say, well, here's the appraisal. Here's what it's worth. We'll pay you half of that. That just slipped out. Amen. I just <laughs> There's no way to measure the cost and the value of the cross. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace. I want you to note the word riches of his grace. I'm talking about the worth of the cross. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20, knowing you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 
He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you. This passage of Scripture says we were redeemed with the precious blood of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Let me read it to you from the Amplified Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. For I know that you were not redeemed from your useless, spiritually unproductive way of life, inherited by tradition from your forefathers with perishable things like silver and gold, but you were actually purchased with precious blood like that of a sacrificial lamb, unblemished and spotless, the priceless blood of Christ. The priceless blood of Christ. I want you to see that word priceless. The word precious can be translated as priceless. When something is priceless, it means there's no way to measure its worth. A work of art, something that has endured through the ages. Appraisers will look at it and say, we, we can't tell you what it's worth because it's priceless. There's no way to measure the worth of the cross. There's no way to measure the worth of the blood. As a matter of fact, I want you to notice what happens. He says you're not redeemed with silver and gold. The things that we would hold to be of great value, silver and gold. If you have silver and gold today, you're blessed because silver and gold's going up, because the value of the dollar is going down, because of inflation and because of a lot of things. And to have money in the bank is okay, but to have silver and gold, and, and that is a precious metal, and it doesn't lose its value. So he's comparing what we hold to be valuable, and he says you're not redeemed with the thing that is most valuable on earth because there's no way to put a worth on the precious priceless blood of the Lamb of Calvary that was shed at the cross. Glory. Our redemption is purchased with priceless blood. Blood is greater than the world's wealth. And I want you to see this, the worth of the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9. Listen to what it says. Or you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich... Yet for our sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. I'm going to read that again. That you through his poverty might become rich. Now, I'm not going to preach about money here, because I'm going to talk about something far greater than money. And that is your salvation. That is your redemption. That is the blood of the Lamb of Calvary that washed me and cleansed me and made me whole. Hallelujah. I want to talk to you this morning and tell you that he was rich, but he gave up the riches and the splendor of glory where the streets are paved with gold, where the walls are made of jasper and the gates are made of pure pearl. He walked away from that and he came to this country. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't have a house. He didn't own a piece of property. He didn't even have an apartment. And he became poor that you and I might become rich. And it's not rich necessarily in stocks and bonds. It's not rich in silver and gold and diamonds and titanium. It's not rich in oil and gas. It's not rich in dollar bills. But I'll tell you, there is a riches that is far beyond that. It is called, I am a child of the king. Hallelujah. I know the Lord. I have a place reserved for me in heaven. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of Calvary. I'm talking about the worth of the cross. There's no way to measure the worth of your salvation I'd rather be a greeter at Walmart and know Jesus than to have all the wealth of this world let me tell you Bill Gates Warren Buffett 
Tim Cook, the CEO of Microsoft and Google, Twitter, Facebook. They have all this money, but let me tell you, they're empty inside. They don't have what you and I have. That's why they're trying to, they try to use their money for all kinds of things to do good because they, they, don't, they don't know what to do. They don't, have a, they don't have an inner witness or a God down on the inside. Well, I'm preaching good and can't get no help in here. I'm telling you, they don't have what we have. What is the worth of the cross? Let me give it to you. Paupers become kings. Revelation 1, 5 through 7, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The dead are raised in newness of life, Ephesians 2, 1, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, who is rich, everybody say rich. Rich in what? Mercy. Because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We become a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, But therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We were not a people, but now we're a people of God. 1 Peter 2, 9, But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that he, you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There was warfare at the cross. We can't... Determine the worth or the value of the cross. But then I want you to notice last, the worship of the cross. Now, we don't worship the cross. Here's the difference. We don't worship at a religious relic. We don't worship the cross, but we worship at the cross. There's the difference. Revelation 5, verse 1 through 5. John has a... Seen in heaven. Listen to what he said. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. This is the title deed of creation. And the Father is holding this title deed to creation. Seven's the number of completion, and you see sevens throughout the book of Revelation. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And verse 4 says, I wept much. John is weeping because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, Whew. the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Notice what it says. John said, Behold, the Lamb of God. But here in heaven they said, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Glory. And in verses 8 through 12, we have a glimpse of the worship in heaven. 
Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times ten thousands and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and glory and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I want to tell you there's worship that takes place at the cross. When I experience injustice, and if you live long enough, you will experience injustice. When things overwhelm me, And being a Christian does not shield you from things that sometimes will happen that overwhelm you and you feel overwhelmed and you feel like the breath's been knocked out of you and you don't know what to do. You believed and you prayed, but yet what you believed for and what you prayed for didn't happen the way that you thought it should happen or that you thought it would happen. You have disappointments in this life. You have sorrows in this life. You have struggles in this life. What do I do? Do I complain to God? Do I murmur and complain? Do I go off and blame God? No. I'll tell you what you do. You get at the foot of the cross and you worship. You take your misunderstandings, you take your questions, you take your struggles, you take everything that's come against you and you take it to the cross and you get at the foot of the cross and you worship. The cross has become a place of worship. May of 1994, Beth and I lost our first child. You've heard me tell this story. You've heard the testimony of it. We went to the hospital early Monday morning not knowing what we would face that day and really for the rest of our lives. The doctor came in, did an ultrasound. He looked at us and said, we have a problem. Your baby has died. We don't have an answer. We don't know why to this day. But God knows. And as word began to get out to the church, we've pastored to family members. I mean, people started coming by the droves. And I'll never forget, somebody came in and they said, we don't understand. This makes us want to question God. And I'm going to tell you what my answer was. Because I had learned this lesson. I said, we're not going to question. We're going to get at the foot of the cross. And we're going to worship. That's how I got through it. At the foot of the cross. I don't know why good people are diagnosed with cancer. I don't understand why some people who don't live a good life. They seem to skate by on things. I don't know why some people are prosecuted and some people are not prosecuted. I don't know why certain things sometimes happen to good people that seem unfair and unjust. But here's what I know. If I can get at the foot of the cross and I can worship, then I believe that the Lord can give me comfort and give me peace and let me know that if God be for me, who can be against me? So this morning, I tell you, there's warfare around the cross. There's always warfare around the cross. There's a worth that we can't ascribe to the cross because when we look at it we don't have the human ability to put a price on something that is beyond priceless but then there's worship that takes place at the cross so this morning I invite you to join me in kneeling at the foot of the cross and giving God praise and giving God honor and saying worthy is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world worthy is the lamb who bought and paid for my redemption worthy is the lamb who has forgiven me who loved me with an unconditional love 
love, with a love beyond my own love. Worthy this morning is the Lamb to receive glory and honor and power. Worthy is the Lamb I worship at the foot of the cross. Stand with me. I want to close with this one thought. Simply called carry a cross. Carry a cross that leads to a kingdom. Carry the scars for the sake of his name. It will be worth it to enter God's city. It will be worth all the heartache and pain. Carry a cross that will take you to glory. No matter the struggle, just keep moving on. For there is a mansion just over the mountain for those who are faithful, for those who stand strong. Carry a cross even though it will cost you everything you've been holding on to. Empty your hands of this world and its treasure. Give up the old to make room for the new. Carry a cross though there's no one beside you. For sometimes the cross must be carried alone. Even when friends and family have forsaken. Just stay on the journey and carry it home. Carry a cross for the one who was willing. To carry an old rugged cross stained with blood. To pay for the sins of a world full of sinners. To write out in crimson the words, God is love.